T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. They haven't won a World Series in a century or so. So what? They're here. Every April, they're here. A 105 or a 705, there is a game. If it gets rained out, guess what? They make it up to you. Does anyone else in your life do that? It's time for Hit and Run. Don't try to strike everybody out. Strikeouts are boring. Besides that, they're fascists. Throw some ground ball. It's more democratic. Cubs and White Sox conversation every Sunday morning till Cubs first pitch. Any bet against my Sox this series is a sucker bet. Of course, I'm not a gambling man. Hosted by Matt Spiegel. I want the absolute truth here. Are you 100%? Yeah, well, I about something like that. You better. You want to make this team. Connecting with you, the baseball fanatic. There's no crying in baseball. No crying. Hit and run on Sports Radio 670 The Score, 670thescore.com, and the radio.com app. Good morning, baseball fans. Happy Sunday to you. It is dreary in terms of clouds, but it's warm enough. It's warm enough for us to uh, really enjoy the day, no matter what. If it rains, okay, fine. I'll go inside. I'll open windows and hopefully watch some baseball being played. The Cubs and the Reds coming up this afternoon over there at Wrigley Field in the finale of their series. It's a 120 start with Jose Quintana and Tanner Rourke. You'll hear it right here on 670. The score, the White Sox, meanwhile, in Minnesota, Right around the same time at 110, Dylan Covey against Jake Odorizzi, who's been very, very good this year. The ERA stands at 2.38. Not as good this last time out as he was two times ago when he was absolutely dominant. He has not been scored upon in four of his five outings. And oh, by the way, the Twins hit a thousand home runs a week. It is unbelievable what the Twins do. And maybe you've got Jorge Polanco on your fantasy team. And you're like, wow, that guy's hitting 339 and he keeps scoring runs. Or maybe you've got Eddie Rosario. I was like, hey, look, another four-hit game for Eddie Rosario. Whatever, man. They are just absolutely loaded. As of yesterday, on pace for 327 home runs. Lots to talk about today on Hit and Run. You can uh, text, as always, at 67011. You can tweet at Matt Spiegel 670 or at Hit and Run 670, although I probably won't see those. And, of course, you can call at 312-644-6767. A lot of people reaching out to me on the socials this week for stuff that has been said on this show and some of the other places that I've been talking baseball on the score um, for a few different things. And I'll tell you why and tie those in to the news of the day uh, in in a matter of moments. Um, But first, here's what happens on Hit and Run. We do a guest co-host every week in studio. Been really fun. Been all over the place. Sometimes it's a huge baseball fan and a music guy like Lynn Bramer. Sometimes it is the venerable baseball scribe of the Tribune like Paul Sullivan. It's been Ryan Dempster before. Uh, Today it is Scott Podsednik. He's here. He's on time. He's leading off. He's leading off the show, technically, after me at 930. But he's here in time to lead off. If, If need be... He could have led the show off right at 9.03. He's still got that 
that top of the order mentality. So Scott Podsednik is here. Really looking forward to talking to him. And, you know, maybe we'll start around 920, 925, something like that. And we'll have him for a while. Later on in the show, also in the studio, Nick Hosteller, the amateur scouting director for the White Sox. Obviously in a very crucial moment, as they have been for the, um, for the rebuild with the draft upcoming. Let's talk about the White Sox scouting perspective, if things have changed for them in advance of the draft, and just the scouting game in particular, fascinated by, uh, by, by some of the intricacies of what he does and what the White Sox do. So we'll be talking about that later on. That said, all that said, you know where we're going later. Let's go now to Wrigley Field, where Yu Darvish goes more than seven innings. Yu Darvish yesterday did what a highly paid big league starter has to do sometimes. He stayed in the damn game. He went seven. 108 pitches. Not your best, most dominant stuff? So what? Wind blowing out? Who cares? Too bad. Stressful innings? Eat it, kid. Go seven. And he did go seven. And that is a very successful performance from you, Darvish. He benefits greatly by the fact that the Cubs put up six runs while he was in there and eight overall, so it's not a loss. But either way, sometimes when you're in the midst of 26 games in 27 days, as they are, you got to go out there and just eat some damn innings no matter what happens. And you, Darvish, did that. But why people reached out to me, as I mentioned before, one of the reasons they reached out to me during the course of the week, was high-leverage Tyler Chatwood yesterday. Because I've been calling for it. That guy's got the stuff. Let's go. He's showing that he's ready. And we'll talk about what he did yesterday, why I was ready for it, and why I'm ready for more of it, whether it comes or not. Another reason people reached out to me this week. uh, Last week, in this very moment of this time slot, I sang the praises of Lucas Giolito and kind of broke down for you why he was doing what he's doing four-seam fastball, and change-up. In addition to moving on the rubber, in addition to working on his mechanics, in addition to his, his much stronger mental approach that he will tell you himself is a stronger approach and the poise and all of that, it's four-seamer and change-up. Sometimes you can simplify and be better than throwing five or six pitches just because you have them. And Giolito has been an absolute revelation with that change and talked about that last week, and then there he is with a four-hit shutout against the unbelievably good Houston Astros. So I I find myself thinking about the Giolito stuff as I look at all sorts of pitchers, especially Darvish yesterday. I'm watching Darvish, and I'm thinking, man, that guy's got so many pitches. Maybe he should throw fewer. I wonder which ones he should focus on. Maybe there's a breakthrough waiting for him. David Cohn was a guy who threw like seven pitches from like four different arm angles and he, uh, he sometimes would be at his best if he focused, if he simplified. Sandy Koufax was fastball curve, right? Dwight Gooden was fastball curve. He got two pitches. Are they really good? If they look like each other, it might be enough. But anyway, back to yesterday at Wrigley Field. You um, Darvish is, as we've talked about many times, a sensitive guy, a guy whose confidence needs to be built and protected and encouraged and all of that. And here's why sending him out to start the eighth inning felt absolutely insane to me. I hated it as soon as I saw it. Here's the context of it. Because, look, Joe Madden's in a very difficult spot right now. These are the perils of working undermanned in the bullpen. But when Darvish came out to start the eighth, I'm like, what? You got seven. You got seven. He did his job. What are you doing? 
If you're there, you, you can feel it in the place. End of the sixth inning, Darvish had survived a very bumpy six. He'd done the low bar of his job. He was leaving. He's up 6-5. He's okay. Gave up a run there. But as he's walking off, very little applause and appreciation as he's walking off. Quiet. Place was quiet. And he's walking slow. You wanted the appreciation. He wanted, he wanted to, to feel that moment, or at least to feel a moment. All right, did I make the fans happy? You know, he's talked about this openly. He wants to pitch well at Wrigley. He wants to feel good with the home crowd. All the players go into the dugout. Hayward reaches the bench, same time as a slow-walking Darvish, and he gives it to you. Hayward gives him the butt slap with the glove and a hand on the shoulder. And then Darvish comes back for the seventh, and most of us are shocked there uh, in the building, unless you'd been paying attention to pregame. When Joe Madden said he was going to have to ride him. He's going to have to ride him further than he might on a given day. And Darvish knew it. So there, anyway, there he is. He's back for the seventh. Dominant, fabulous seventh inning. Seventh inning, seven pitches. Everybody in the building thought Darvish was done to finish the seventh. He went seven. He did it. He's walking off. Huge cheers. People chanting, you, mission accomplished. Javier Baez, among others, hangs around on the field instead of going into the dugout, standing, waiting for Darvish to pat him on the butt with the glove. And Baez is the emotional center of that team, especially publicly, right? So you gets it from Javi. A great moment, a confidence builder. You've done yeoman's work. In the grand operation that is, quote, help you, Darvish, be comfortable and confident, unquote. This was perfect. Nailed it. And then he's back. What? What? He's back for the eighth. And he gives up the leadoff homer to Derek Dietrich to tie the game. The place boos. You worry about used confidence. At least I did. And then he gives up the hit to Iglesias. And then the bullpen comes in and does their job, which we'll talk about. What's important to me about this is that you Darvish needs to leave there feeling really good. That, that's just what you need from that guy. It's what that team needs from that guy. It doesn't matter if you think he's soft as a fan, if you think he's too sensitive, whatever. He needs to leave there feeling good. And did he? That question was asked to Joe Madden after the game. Did, did you worry about you giving up that final homer and those two hits and perhaps not feeling good about his outing? He's pretty good at processing exactly what did occur. What, what occurred is that he pitched well and he battled for his team and he got into the eighth inning. That he's going to walk away with that. I totally believe that. He's pretty good at understanding uh, the positives that he, that he brought to the table today. Um, of course, he'd like to have gotten the win, but he didn't. But that's, I'm telling you, he's such a good teammate. He doesn't get enough credit for that. He's really about everybody else. All right, so I wanted to take you outside of the conversation that we could have as I talk about it or Rick Camp was talking about it before. And the fans, you can say he was good, he was bad or whatever. Just stay in the room. Stay in the room and try to stay in Darvish's head. Will, can you, Darvish, feel good about this? He should. He should feel good about it. So if you're a fan and you want him to feel good, cheer him on, et cetera. And if you're in that organization, you got to make sure he sees the positive of it. And hopefully he will, even though he gave up the homer and ended up giving up six runs. Crazy day out there. He went seven plus. That's a big time positive for Darvish. Hopefully it feels like that. And I think it would have felt like that if he just was done after seven, for sure. Hopefully it still feels like that. And then in the ninth inning, I'm psyched to see Tyler Chatwood warming up. I'm psyched to see Ch- Tyler Chatwood because I've been calling for it. 
for a while. Um, I thought maybe we'd see uh, Tim Collins come in and get Votto, and then Chatwood come in for two outs. No, it was Chatwood straight up, and he gave up the hit to Votto right away, and then he gave up another hit, a single to Suarez, right? So he's got first and second, nobody out. But there, there are reasons that I've been calling for high-leverage Chatwood. Number one, of course, is the stuff. He's got legit swing-and-miss stuff in a bullpen that does not have a lot of swing-and-miss people. With his fastball, with the curve, he is a bat-misser, as they, as they say. Um, it, certainly more so than anybody else that's in that at pen right now, uh, other than, than Carl Edwards when he's on. But anyway, so I've been calling for Chatwood because of the stuff. Number two, the vast improvement in his ability, his control, the execution this year. The walk rate is down. The control is there. You've seen it. And number three, here's why I've been calling for it and, it, and, I, and I feel comfortable with him there. This is a very mentally tough dude, and I have learned that this year. This has been praised a lot from within this year. Remember all the talk about how Jason Hayward was struggling mightily in that first year of his deal, but and at different times he struggled, but he has never mentally let it get to him in terms of taking away from his fielding, taking away from his presence in the clubhouse, that kind of thing. Same thing can be said for Tyler Chatwood. Teammates have loved the way that he has approached things, keeps battling to figure it out, keeps fighting, keeps trying to stay positive, and he has figured it out, and the teammates are rooting for him. And he is willing to help the team in absolutely any way possible. Mentally tough dude. Because baseball's hard, and he struggled mightily last year. But tough dude. And you saw that toughness in action right there in the ninth. He gives up two hits. All right, he gets first and second, nobody outs. He gets a ground ball, and what does he do? He hustles over quickly, efficiently, assertively, and covered first with plenty of time. And Baez makes the throw back to Chatwood on a uh, 3-6-1 double play. Getting over there fast is a big deal. Actually, Madden talked about it in postgame, too. Said, you know, Chatwood fields the position so well. That's an underrated part of his game. It's a big part of Javi being able to make that throw and get that double play. He, uh, he is on point mentally and emotionally in the middle of big-time trouble right there when everybody's got the seatbelt fastened. I like Tyler Chatwood. I like his, like his moxie, and you need that in the ninth. That's a big part of what you are in the ninth or in the, or in the eighth in high leverage. I'm, I'm ready to trust Tyler Chatwood in those spots. Call me crazy. Chatwood was asked about what it felt like to be the closer yesterday. Look, the game's over if you get out of it. Those guys have been standing in the heat. You want to help them out. It was awesome to be out there, be able to do it and get the job done. It was cool. It was a cool feeling. If I get more, chances like that. Cool. As long as I'm helping us win, that's all I want to do. Good dude. Enjoyed his moment. Go ahead and give him some more. Uh, One more thing about Darvish um, and the way that things are working over there. And they are working for Darvish the last three starts. He got Caratini, got Victor Caratini as his catcher yesterday after getting Taylor Davis as his catcher when Davis was here. The common element is no Wilson Contreras. And this just is what it is. And I want to make sure, you know, folks realize what it is that Wilson Contreras's explosive, jumpy energy behind the plate, these sometimes unnecessary cat-like reflexes of Wilson Contreras, as I have uh, discussed, even though it's more under control now than it ever has been, it's not a great fit for you, Darvish. 
Wilson's emotional volatility, his energy, emotionally, even though it's more under control than it ever has been, I don't think it's a great fit for you, Darvish. So that's why you're seeing you get Caratini. It's why you saw a second straight day off for Contreras. And yes, the rest is nice, too. And he will go the next four as uh, they get going on the road trip after today. But that's just, that's just the way it's going to be. And if you're saying to yourself, man, this is a lot of stuff to do for a pitcher, for a $126 million pitcher, worrying about his confidence, giving him his personal catcher, he's the most important guy in the building on the days that he's going. He absolutely is. Your investment matters. And yes, make them comfortable. Do what you got to do. And they're figuring it out. They're finding ways. Add this to the, uh, the good stretch for you, Darvish, as a Cubs starting pitcher. By my count, now three in a row. Different ways, different contexts, different levels of dominance or effectiveness. But three good ones in a row. For you, Darvish. This hour on the score is being brought to you by the Grand Geneva Resort and Spa, home of the Brute and the Highlands Championship Golf Courses, GrandGenevaGolf.com. It needs to still feel that way for him. All right, well, we were going to wait, but I mean, Scotty Pods is here. Is he ready to go, Zach? Zach Withers, you're right there. Is he ready to go? All right, good. Ready to go. Outstanding. Let's take a break on Hit and Run here on 670 The Score. And Scott Pitsednik is with us in studio for the next while as my guest co host. It's Matt Spiegel here with you on Hit and Run. It is 670 The Score. Scott Pudsednik, former Major League Baseball player and All-Star. As a base hit, this ball game is over! Yeah! Yeah! A big win for the Sox as Scotty Pudge comes through with his second hit of the game. Lead-off hitter for the 2005 Chicago White Sox World Series champions. Pudsednik hits one to deep right center field. Back at the wall. It's Scott Pinsednik and Matt Spiegel on Hit and Run. You know, I, I, I wouldn't think so, but I was just assured that hearing that home run never gets old for Scott Pinsednik. That's that's good to know. All right, because I was like, all right, Scott, you know, yes, it is your open, and I know there's a little journey in there. There's a little, uh, there's there's Joe Buck calling your walk off in Game Two of 2005, and you don't mind hearing that again. You're hey, okay with that. The goosebumps still flow. I'm not gonna lie. I, Every time I hear it, it's incredible. I was um I was there that night, lucky enough to be there in the press box that night, and I, I've talked about this before. The fans stayed. Everybody stayed for a long time. You guys, you know, you celebrated on the field. You enjoyed the hell out of it. And you guys go inside. The fans stayed because you guys were so good and so on fire. that mm-hmm. felt like they knew you might not come back. So many crazy, vivid memories and thoughts from that year, you know, from start to finish. But, uh, but that whole occurrence, you know, going back to the Canerico Grand Slam there uh-huh. in the sixth, uh-huh. I mean, uh, so many crazy things throughout that series. Um, but, you know, to do it, you know, I've said this in the past, but to do it at, at, at that time for, at, you know, a team that has not won a championship in so long, you know, the fans were so behind us, so passionate, uh, a big part of, of rallying us on and kind of a, a, a pushing the tail at times, you know, we all need that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So special. It really was. Well, I, I don't want to delve too much into that moment right off the top because that's that's just too big, too fast. Scott. But Sednick, <laughs> let's slow down. Let's slow down. Let's, let's work our way into the conversation, shall we? You bet. Uh, um, um, I remember when you had a big series against the Cubs in early May of 2004 as a Milwaukee Brewer. And I, and I think that was your first series of consequence as a starting center fielder. Mm-hmm. For the Milwaukee Brewers, because you you made the team that year, um, but that was that was the series, and I, I when when you knew that you were getting an opportunity, and mm-hmm. and I I don't think people realize you know sometimes people, oh Scott and Scott setting sure I remember him you know young rookie stealing a lot of bases stealing seventy bases for um, for the Brewers and then part of the two thousand five but how many years had you been in the minor leagues up until? That full rookie season of 2004. Matt, nine long years in in the minor leagues. And, you know, when you're in the middle of that stretch, you don't realize it. You know, you're just, you're, you're focused, you're tunnel visioned, you're trying to figure yourself out. You're trying to learn the game, try to turn yourself into professional. And you don't realize the differences between the minor leagues and the big leagues. But once I got that first call there in 2001 and saw what the big leagues was all about, I told myself, hey, I, I want to stay here. I don't want to go back to riding buses. But yeah, it was uh, nine long years that uh, it took me to you know to figure myself out and figure the game out. Drafted in '94, um, and then yeah, 2001 with the Mariners. I would, you, you remember who you pinch ran for in your first appearance? Ichiro. Yeah. How how funny is that? <laughs> Let's go ahead and pinch run for one of the, the greatest fastest, base guys, fastest guy in the league. <laughs> One of the great base runners in the history of the game. Go ahead, Scott. Go. Out. Why'd you pinch run for him? Did he get hurt? Was uh, it, it, late? Was, it was late in the game. I, I, I think it was in L.A. If I'm not mistaken. So I pinch ran for him and went and played right field. I think for an inning, didn't get an at bat. But I kind of chuckled as I'm jogging out. I'm like, I'm pinch running for the fastest guy in the league. This is crazy. <laughs> That's amazing. And then you you get your first at bat a couple a couple nights later, I think, in Arizona. Or against the Diamondbacks. It was actually at, in, uh, was in, in Seattle? Seattle against okay. the Diamondbacks. Against yes. the Diamondbacks. A bases loaded triple for Scott Putsednik in his first Lou threw me right into the fire. Bases loaded. I think I pitched, I did pinch hit for Ed Sprague. Okay. So I'm down in the – it happened pretty quick. I didn't have a lot of time to think about it. I'm getting loose down in the tunnel, and I hear someone come around and say, hey, you're pinch hitting, let's go. And before I knew it, I'm on deck, right? So I'm walking up to the plate. Safeco Field, that was a year they had won – you know, I think 114 games. They were, we were so far ahead in the standings. Oh, that's the year. That that's that's the year. Like where they almost break. They almost break 116, which was the all-time record. Right. So Safeco Field was packed, 45, 43,000 strong. So mm-hmm. I walk up to the to the batter's box, and and I vividly remember how bright it was. I'm like, oh my god! You know, all those those minor league parks you play in, they're not the brightest of <laughs> lights. And I remember, oh my gosh, this is so bright. And then you know this uh, this hum in the air. It was just a totally different animal that I've ever been a part of. Uh, and unfortunately, got a you know got a pitch to hit and did something with it. You uh, drove in John Olerud, Brett Boone, and Mike Cameron. <laughs> those those are the guys that scored. Oh man! And so I'm I'm over there at third base, and they record the the out, and I'm running out to left field, and the you know, the crowd is on their feet. And and I'm you know I'm a rookie I knew nothing about anything uh-huh. and, and I remember the, the bullpen coach he's like hey you dip your hat get, give it to him so I took my hat and they went crazy uh, it was a real special time for me that's awesome um, so then you think all right 
I'm here, but no. Ended up back in the minors for a couple of years. Why? What did you still have to figure out, or what did they tell you you had to figure well, out? Well, there was just being consistent um, at that level. You know, I'm sure we'll get into it later when we start talking about some specifics on some of these players. But getting to the big leagues is, is one thing. You know, being at the right place at the right time and, and, and having the ability to kind of get your foot in the door is one thing. Being able to compete against the best players in the world on a consistent basis is an entire different animal. And so you do that for a year, a couple of years. Well, now you get to arbitration to where um, they can bring in a guy making the minimum. If he can do your job, then you're just not going to last. So you have to be able to bring something to the table. You have to be able to make an impact. Um, So, you know, I just wasn't quite the professional i needed to be at that point in my career to stick around yet did you did you know it did you agree with that well these were physically and talent wise you know was there but you know the intangibles and what we talk about being a you know world-class player i I had yet to develop and and figure out and and that was part of the reason why i spent nine years you know I, i had the i came out of high school very raw you know i could run like a deer i had good hands but i didn't know how to use that out on the baseball field. I didn't know how to manage myself hmm. as a professional. So I, I still needed a little more seasoning, you know, to, to be able to go out and compete on a day-in and day-out basis. That, that must have been a struggle, though, to have some kind of self-awareness and sort of calm to stick with it well, at the same time. I, that awareness, you know, developed over time. I, you know, It wasn't <laughs> there yet. But uh, I, I finally got to a point to where, you know, hey, look, you know, I have this ability. People, you know, keep telling me, you know, you, you have the ability to do this. Well, well, why is it not happening? So I, I kind of went to the drawing board. I just started asking why. Okay, why is this happening? Why is this happening? You know, when I'm, I hit a ground ball to second base, why am I rolling over that pitch? And just kind of got down to the basics, started asking people questions, um, and eventually kind of started, you know, gaining a little traction, gaining a little momentum, and, hmm. and kind of figured out who I was, figured out uh, what I bring to the table and how I'm going to impact most players. So that was one of the things was, you know, kind of knowing – who you are, knowing your skill set and doing what you can do. I was up there really didn't have a plan, have an approach, trying to hit homers, trying to hit doubles. Hmm. I didn't know who I was, you know, and it, it took me a while to figure that out. That's It's interesting because you can have a whole bunch of different coaches and managers along the way, but especially if you're bouncing from organizations as you did and even just bouncing levels, some organizations are unified and have good communication level to level and some don't. You got to be your own Absolutely, dude. and develop it or in relaying information to another player to where he's going to completely understand it and then trust, you know, you know, I have to trust these guys that they're telling me and giving me the right stuff. Um, So, you know, hopefully, you know, you find a guy that that's got, that has your best interest in mind. And then you, you take bits and pieces from, from things if you learn, plug them in and see if they work. Man, I still get, I still hear stories like that of major league veterans who are here in town and decide, all right, I think this coach actually believes me mm-hmm. or believes in me, and I think he genuinely wants me to be better. I'm going to go ahead and let him help me be better. I think, hey. if you, I, think if you, excuse, I think if you talk to most veterans, there's going to be one or two distinct individuals throughout their career that really help them pivot and kind of get over the hump, so to speak. You mm-hmm. know, I know there were, there were certain guys throughout my 18-year of professional baseball that I look back and – and um, who's that like some specific coaches along the well, way Well, Dave Nelson uh, rest is so um, first base coach for the Milwaukee Brewers mm-hmm. when I broke with those guys in 2003 from a base stealing standpoint taught me a ton um, he was a base stealer in his right or back in his day and and um, 
he, he really liked me. He took me under his wing. Um, he, he's such a great guy. We communicated so well together. But I learned a great deal about reading pitchers, about the preparations, all the nuances that go into stealing bases at the big league level. So he really helped me start developing um, my skill to steal a base. Um, I really believe Mike Gellinger and Greg Walker turned me around as a hitter hmm. um, with the White Sox. I came over from Milwaukee after the 04 season and at that time still hadn't peaked as a hitter. I, I felt like I turned the corner mat as a professional hitter in 2009, believe it or not. <laughs> Ser- seriously. I mean, wow. I, I had, had the ability to kind of get it done, but I didn't completely understand my approach and what I was really trying to do until 2009. And all of that information I learned from Mike Gellinger and Greg Walker. So from a hitting standpoint, those guys taught me a great deal about the art of hitting. That's the second run with the White Sox in 2009. Yeah, we'll get there. Bottom of the hour was brought to you by Northwestern football. Join coach Fitz and the 17th ranked cats this fall at Ryan field matchups include Ohio state, Michigan state, and Iowa season tickets on sale now at nusports.com and was brought to you by Goodwill. Every time you shop at Goodwill, you wield the power to put people to work. Every purchase enables Goodwill to help someone develop a resume, learn interview skills, or get a job. You shop, we train people work, visit amazinggoodwill.com for a Goodwill store near you. So, after you are no longer in Milwaukee, you guys, do you still reach out to those old coaches to, when Dave Nelson was, was alive and you were playing somewhere else? Would you still reach out to him and touch base? I did. It to? was so great to see Dave. Such a great person. He always had a smile on his face. Um, you know, anyone who knew Dave will tell you just one of the great baseball people and personalities mm. that I've ever been a part of. Um, Kenny Lofton was, an, was one of his favorite players. And, and when I'd come across Kenny, you know, one of the first – Subjects that came up was Dave. You know, how's Dave doing? How's Dave? He's just such a genuine person. So it was always a pleasure meeting back up with him. And one of my vivid memories of Dave, after he would hit me ground balls, I'd hit, I'd hit in the first round, and I'd go out and I'd take my ground balls from him, and he would stroll out real slow, come out to me just, just to visit, just to chat. You are because I was, you know, I was a rookie. I'm still learning the game. Yeah. How you doing? You all right? You and I, and I was playing well, and and I just vividly remember him. When he would walk away, right, he'd look at me with this little smile and say, "Keep on, keeping on, brother." And he would walk <laughs> off. And, and, I, and that's one of the, one of the things I, I'll always remember from Dave. Solid advice, frankly. <laughs> keep on going. I mean, we keep kinda, on, keep it on. We don't have a choice, really. <laughs> right. Exactly. We're, we're better off when we just give in and do it. Right. So it was always a pleasure, you know, reuniting with Dave and, and just talking about the game. And then, um, you know, it, it's. You know, seeing Mike Gellinger and and Greg Walker, Greg, Greg and I developed a really close relationship over the years. Here, um, he helped me out a great deal. Somewhat, kind of like a second father to me, mm. taught me a great deal. Not only about the art of hitting, but just uh, you know how to be a pro and how to go about your business. Um, so yeah, it's always great mm-hmm. um, talking with those guys and kind of reflecting back on on what we were able to accomplish. So drafted in '94 with the Rangers, traded to Miami, back to Texas, eventually Seattle. You get to Milwaukee. I want to talk about that with you. And got eight surgeries along the way, three knee surgeries, another on the wrist, sports hernia. I mean, this three is, of them. Woof. That's that's an that's an arduous run for Scott Putsednik. And when we come back uh, as we continue here on Hit and Run, I want to talk about that that series against the Cubs as a Brewer in May. Um, because talk about self-awareness, you realized a moment that you were in at the time. So we'll do that next. It's Matt Spiegel here with you on The Score. It's Hit and Run. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back in on Hit and Run on 670 The Score. 
Every week we have a different guest co-host. Next week is Jason Benetti, White Sox broadcaster, who's a terrific guy, a brilliant man, a funny man, a quirky human. So he'll be in. And uh, later on this show, Nick Hostetler, the amateur scouting director for the White Sox, will be here. Been a little cub heavy in recent weeks, so we're going White Sox heavy for a couple of weeks here. And Scott Putsednik is is with us. Um, we kind of set the scene for people, Scott, on what it took for you to get to the bigs and how long it was. Eight surgeries, nine years, I think four different organizations, a cup of coffee in Seattle, back down to Tacoma, eventually you go to Milwaukee. And 2003 in Milwaukee, it's, you, you break camp with the team but you don't become a full-time starter until May, and I think it's that series I'm referencing against the Cubs in May. Tell people how this particular thing went down. So I, I made the club. I, I can't recall a player. It might have been Brady Clark who uh, came up with an injury in spring training, and I'm not sure if I would have made the team with this injury or not. I had a good spring. Um, ended up breaking with the club. Um, looked at it as, hey, you know, it's an opportunity. I, I, I got to try and run with this. I finally, you know, make my first opening day roster after nine years in the minor leagues. So I'm getting opportunities sparingly, and I feel like I'm I'm holding my own. You know, I'm, I'm swinging the bat pretty well. I, I feel good about it. So we get to May, and I remember it vividly because the day was was May 13th. And um, one of my good, good buddies, he was a rookie with me at the time, Keith Ginter, says, hey, Sean Estes, is throwing who was a lefty so you won't be starting tomorrow you want to go play golf i said yeah let's do it so we go play 18 holes of golf and i get to the field later that day and walk across glance up at the lineup card and there i am leading off (laughs) so i'm like oh i'm I'm kind of scrambling okay well let me let me let me start preparing let me go so we're in stretch Later in that day, and Eddie Perez, the catcher, the catcher yeah. veteran, pulls me aside and he said, "Hey, long time personal catcher for Greg Maddox for a while mm-hmm. in Atlanta. Great guy, great guy." Pulls me aside and he says, "Hey, kid, listen, you know they're not completely happy with what's going on in, in center field. Alex Sanchez was there playing center. He said they're going to run you out there for a couple of games. You know, just go go do what you do." So, I I immediately thought, "Look, th- this is it." You know, you, you're 10 years into professional baseball. You're 26 years old. Uh, this, this is your shot. This, this is, this is time. So I, I think I went, uh, one for, it was either 0 for 4 or 1 for 4 against Estes. You know, not really nothing spectacular. The next night, I think I went 0 for 4 and I, if I believe, remember correctly, I got thrown out trying to steal second base. Oh boy. So, which is what I did. I was a base dealer, right? That's that's my skill. So I remember going home and I made a phone call to my to my father, um, and I said, "Dad, look, this is it. You know, I've I've grinded ten, nine, ten long years, all these operations, all this blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, Dad, this is it. You know, I'm I'm going to get labeled. It's, it's it's time. You know, and what does the father say? You know, to his son at that time, he, he you know, it's probably I put him in a tough spot, but I. I remember him saying, son, look, there's nothing I can really say or do. You know, you, you go out there and just let it all hang out. You know, just go play hard, go have fun. 
and just go let your ability somehow find a way to just let your abilities pour out on the baseball field. So you're you're thinking that you're going to get labeled as an injury prone like four A guy, absolutely right. Like at twenty six, good enough for AAA, not good enough for the bigs. Backup guy at best. Uh huh. You know, can run, can maybe come up and steal a base, but in terms of being an everyday player at the big leagues, which is what I wanted to be probably wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. I, I knew at that time the window of opportunity was small. You know, I, I, I've seen guys get called up and, and paid attention to, to, you know, to the length of at-bats. I wasn't a first-round draft pick by the Milwaukee Brewers. Right. You know, I, I wasn't completely sure how big that window was going to be for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I had two games and kind of did so-so. So, you know, I, I, there was a sense of urgency. I knew I had to make something happen. Mm. So that next game... I ended up going one for three with a home run in the eighth inning off Alfonseca to put us up, either tie the game or put us up one. Antonio Alfonseca, so the six fingers didn't get in the way. <laughs> so I, I remember I hit a home run out to right center, and that kind of gave me you know, a little momentum, a little, little swagger, and I went on and, and played well from, from that point on. And uh, two weeks later, I was – in a hotel room, and I remember they. I saw down on the bottom scroll they traded Alex Sanchez, who was the center fielder at that time, wow. to the Detroit Tigers. Wow! So the you uh, know it's your job. center field position was was mine, and kind of took it from there. And did and, they call uh, you and tell you that was happening, or did you just see? No, I saw it at the bottom line. And I immediately called my father. I said, "Dad, I, I <laughs> if I saw correctly, I <laughs> think they just traded Alex Sanchez." So, um, you know, I had a pretty good sense that. You know the job was mine, and I'll have a you know at least a, I've earned myself a, a little little more time to go out and, and try to develop. But Sednik, you uh, in two thousand three hit three fourteen on base percentage of three seventy nine, forty three steals. You scored a hundred runs, um, a monster true leadoff season. The two best years of my career from an offensive standpoint were that that rookie season two thousand three, and then two thousand nine, my second go with the White Sox, and. What I knew in 03 compared to kind of the player I was in 09 were just two completely different players. You know, I got some some good similar production, hmm. but in terms of of you know the thought process and and kind of who I was as a professional was totally different. I still to this day look back at that 03 season. I look at film and I, and I look at my approach. What were you doing? Were you were you, were you more slappy than you I, ended I, up I was. Being? I I was the the only my only thought that year was to stay inside of the baseball. Literally, Butch Weiniger was my hitting coach, and we came up with a routine in the cage. I'd, I'd set the tee on the inner half of the plate, and uh, I'd try to inside-out balls to the back of the cage. Got and you. for some reason, that suited me well. Because they, they're going after you there, they, because they thought they could get you out there. Well, mm-hmm. I, I don't think there there was a book out on me yet. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the, the bigger body of work you put in, they start, obviously, you know, paying attention, and they find your holes. Um but that that year was was just. I look back and kind of marvel at what I was able to accomplish. You know, really not knowing a lot about myself yeah. and, and in terms of the you know the art of hitting. And then the next year, seventy stolen bases. People don't do this anymore. Yeah, well, Scott. there's Dave Nelson. You know, the things that Dave started yeah. started teaching me. Well, t- take and- a, take us inside that because. I mean, as a guy who has been fascinated by base stealers forever, where uh, whether I'm reading about Lou Brock and the Rolling Start, or mm-hmm. you know, in my baseball fan prime, watching Ricky Henderson just demolish records mm-hmm. and seeing Vince Coleman come up and get 117 one year, it's like I think it was 117, but like 
what t- tell what, how are you reading a pitcher? How, how does it work for you when you're there? What are you looking for? Because pitchers think that they're tricking you, mm-hmm. but they're doing something. They've got tells. Right? Well, I'll be, I'll be completely honest with you, Matt. I didn't know anything about stealing bases when I got to the big leagues. I didn't. I mm. think the most bases ever stolen in a minor league season was maybe thirty. You know, and that was just on pure speed. I had no idea what I was doing. I, I didn't know anything about paying attention to pitchers, about reads, about my jump, about the technique, about that first step, until I got to uh, you know united with with Dave Nelson, and we started mm. talking about that, and just brought on a whole other world of me of, of things that I needed to work on and things that I could could start paying attention to. And he's the guy that Kenny Lofton learned his stuff from Absolutely. in the same way. Absolutely. So, so I I. I had enough awareness at that time to understand that I was going to have to learn how to steal bases if I wanted to stay at the big league level. Mm-hmm. That was I could run. I needed to try to use that ability, um, you know, th- to the best I could. So, um, kind of again went to the drawing board and started communicating with him. I started studying pitchers. We didn't really have the technology in the minor leagues as we did in the big leagues to be able to, to watch pitchers, see how how they would react with runners on, and, you know, and I just started learning all this, you know, and I would go to the film room. It was VHS at that time. Now, I mean, they have hard drives, right. you know, the information, the technology. Right. But, with, with, with a text message, you can say, <laughs> give me all these guys on my iPad. Absolutely. To the T. Right. And I remember these VH, big VHS cassettes and I'd put it in and I would start watching these pictures. And if you watch enough video and you, you know, you watch enough on yourself and about pictures, you can't help but just start getting a feel of how those guys are reacting. You see subtle differences. You see pattern differences. You see different looks. You see body language. Hmm. You see how they react. And and over time, I started figuring out that I could tell when he was paying attention to me versus when he wasn't. I could tell when I was in his head. So I, I finally realized the impact that I could make hmm. being on first base. And, you know, I grew up, you know, running track and, and having the ability to run. And and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I loved being at first base with everyone in the ballpark knowing I was going to steal a base and then executing oh, you know, a bet. good jump and stealing a base. Because I mean, the, way, I, the way you're describing it, it's you are in a cat and mouse game with yes, him. Yes. That it's not about you being faster, even your skill set. You, you're, you know whether you're in his head, whether he's thinking about you, whether he's not paying attention. Yes. And also physically, you can see whether he's going to throw or not. Absolutely, it's it's a poker game out there. You know, is what is he um, the, the percentages on, on what he's going to throw in certain counts? Mm. Um, how much does he pick over? So then that that game starts going. Sure, you know, I, I would. If Jermaine dies up or Canerco's up, you you know he's probably more worried about those guys. Absolutely, absolutely, and those are things you start learning. So then the value of me being at first base sometimes there was better value in me staying there uh-huh. and, and 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 getting a big lead, but having a one way lead to get back, having just having him in my mind, you know, when there was a big big bat behind me, you just distract him. Absolutely, and Canerco knows that he's distracted. Absolutely, that's I, that's I learned that in in '05. This light bulb kind of went off in my head. In 2005, I, I let off the game with a base hit, and or or it might have been later in the game, but manager called time and walks out to the mound, and and I knew they were talking about me, and 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 this light bulb goes off, and I said, you know what, I can have a great impact over here, and then that's when, you know, 
I just uh, I kind of learned of, of the player that I could be with that, with that, with you know, having the ability to steal a base. See, I love that because a lot of times, you know, you'll say things like, well, you know, a guy has some protection in the lineup because this guy is behind him or a guy is uh, affected by somebody at first base. People think, oh, come on now. He's just, no, they're human beings out they're, there. They're human beings. You're getting in somebody's head. You're throwing off his concentration even just by a little bit. He's not at 100%. You take advantage of that. And the American League Central did not have a legitimate impact base stealer you know for years before that so i come to the white Sox. well that's interesting and i'm starts i start stealing bases at this clip and they're kind of like we've you know we've never really had to deal with a guy who can who can make an impact on the base you know on the base pass so um we we kind of gained an identity look we didn't know this at the beginning of the season we didn't uh-huh. know this at spring training <laughs> we, we, you never really know what you have and you, and you don't know the identity of your club until you get out there and you start you start letting it all hang out, and you wow. kind of figure out who you are, what you do as a club, your strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So then, as time went on, you know, I'm stealing bases. We, Aguchi could handle the bat behind me. Mm. He he knew his role. So it was get on base, steal second. Gucci get him over, and you know we we go up one to nothing. See, so that's, that that makes all the sense in the world. We kind of gained you know an, an offensive identity, and then and then by the time you guys hit the playoffs, you knew exactly who you were and had a sense of confidence together about who you were. And I'm not going to sit here and and take solely credit for what Aguchi and I did at the top of the lineup. No, but Look, it, it, we could we could bang balls out of the ballpark. Jermaine Dye, Paul sure. Shanker, I mean, we had plenty of meat. But everybody's got a role and you guys set the tone. Exactly. We we knew what we were best at. We were versatile. You know, we could manufacture a run here or there, but we also had the ability to hit the ball out of the ballpark. So um yeah and, and it takes that to win it all. You know takes you, a mix. You, you got absolutely you got to be able to do when you, when you get in some good pitching, you're, you're, the, the long ball is shut down. you got to have the mm-hmm. ability to, to manufacture something. He is Scott Pitsednik. He's your guest co-host on Hit and Run right here today on 670 The Score. This is fun. I um, want to talk about two of, uh, I, I think, probably the first two highlights that come to mind in your White Sox career. Um, I bet you know which one one of them is, and you probably know that the other one's a little more feisty. We'll do that next on 670 The Score. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 